0: Hi, I'm Elise.
1: I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series.
0: This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 10, Sanctuary, teleplay by Frederick Rappaport and directed by Les Landau. This episode aired on November 28th, 1993.
1: This week on Deep Space Nine, a group of refugees come through the wormhole in search of Katana, their fabled homeworld.
0: So I just wanted to start off by saying I vaguely remember this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and only... This is how we start
1: every episode, does or doesn't at least remember watching this episode.
0: <laughs> and only because that character actor from that movie, Very Bad Things, um, Leland Orser, who's like in a bunch of shit, um, is in it.
1: Um he's and truly one of those uh oh it's that guy guys. Oh a
0: hundred percent. And today I learned he's married to Jean Triplehorn, who I think is lovely. Did you ever hear her and Eddie Vetter's cover of Rolling Stones shattered? No. Um, it's, it was done for, like, some, like, probably Democrat charity thing or something. Well, regardless of that, it is really amusing, and I recommend, um, trying to find that. I'm sure it's on YouTube or something. They, like, sing it kind of, like, almost ironically. I don't know. It was just really funny.
1: I will have to find that later. Um. (laughs) So...
0: I know that the language barrier in this episode gets kind of resolved pretty early on in the, in the episode or, like, maybe, like, you know, like, a quarter of the way through the episode. But, like, at the beginning, I was like, is this supposed to be, like, DS9's Dharmak Like, what? Like, with um just people not understanding each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it's, like... Sorry, I said, like, if that still great Bobby Millers is listening, he'll be very, very distraught. It's always interesting when Star Trek chooses to do this, because, like, you kind of forget, or at least I kind of forget, that there's a meta reason that everyone's, like, speaking English, like, in terms of, well... You know, like a technological reason, not a meta reason. Try not to, to use that word. Now that Facebook's stolen it from the, the lexicon. It's, <laughs> it's overused. Um, it was already overused, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But no, that there's a technological solution or an in-universe answer. That's what I'm trying to say. Of why right, right. everyone's speaking English. Not just because it's a show produced on Earth, which it is. Um but yeah, so it's always interesting when it's like, oh, the universal translator that you forget about, that's just always on, now isn't working, right. and then had to sort through. So I, I it was an interesting element, because like you say, it does get resolved fairly quickly, especially like in contrast to um, the TNG episode, Darmok, which where everyone... So whether it's Talmarians or whatever their names are speaking memes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they speak in allegory. And the, uh, stuff yeah, like that. Same but, difference. But yeah, Um <laughs> but it kind of adds this almost sense of realism right. to what a first contact situation and stuff would be like in, in this. And like, yeah.
0: Especially, yeah, it's just
1: interesting. It's appreciated. Yeah. And then again, it doesn't go on too long and then they yeah. they sort it out and they, they milk some uh humor out of it too. So that's that's always nice.
0: I don't remember ever seeing a Star Trek episode where like the universal translator has to like isn't working at first and then like figures it out. Like I feel like it usually either works or it doesn't work. So right. I found it super interesting. Um in the use that like obviously there's different species coming from the Gamma Quadrant that the Alpha Quadrant has never heard of and no never encountered before. I mean, that's obviously yeah. the count a uh, Star Trek thing in general, but um it just really made so much sense to me that we would like over the course of time see the universal translator figuring it out although it did make me wonder why um the universal translator didn't work like that in the episode babel where they all got sick and started spouting nonsense and that was and i'm sure it's because they were a they didn't think of it but also like not every, it was so nonsensical that like not even everyone was like using the same nonsense so that probably is why but it's probably really the we didn't think of it and that was not the point of that episode
1: yeah no that's that's an interesting interesting callback an interesting thought where it's like when you're suffering from aphasia and like a different word is coming out than the word you're trying to say or thinking of like would like the universe tries are not being sophisticated enough to pick it up and i mean maybe it would be on a starship but you know it's a cardassian station as uh right <laughs> as chief o'brien likes to to remind us yes. from time to time
0: like i imagine and i don't really remember because we covered that episode a long time ago but like if i was trying to say apple and said banana and you were trying to say apple and said orange so like we're not it's not the same nonsense so it probably would have been harder if everyone's the guide for everyone's, like, wording was is different. Um, <laughs> this is kind of, like, doesn't really fit in anywhere. But one thing I noticed throughout the episode is that Kira and Hanik have absolutely no sense of fashion. The dress that they're both making fun of is awesome, and I want
1: to wear it. It's not my favorite, but you do you. I, I support you in all of your your fashion endeavors. I would um, say
0: that it is. It did remind me of like something you would, and it it's funny because obviously it's a space station, and like I always think about like how when you're in these transit spots, um, clothing is a little bit more out there and more expensive like if you go to the airport or like a casino like the dresses in those places are going to be like more flamboyant or more like extra and it just kind of it made me think of like okay i can picture this being like a shop in a casino where there's like this ridiculous outfit that someone bought because they didn't know what to wear like tonight or whatever
1: yeah yeah no, fair, fair enough, and like I do think that was a good like, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with um Kira and Hanik's uh, <laughs> sense of fashion or or taste, their taste, I guess I should say, um, I did think that was a a good bit. I did enjoy it. Oh bit.
0: yeah, no, I did too, um, and like you know, it showed how their they were they miscommunicated at first, so that was that was good. Um, I did think Hanique's outfit that she wore for most of the episode would have been better if it was um different colors, like if it wasn't like the same color for the dress as the her like cardigan thing. Like, like I didn't think her outfit was bad, but um, yeah, but yeah, it's like, like a- yeah. Sorry, I mean, man. they're refugees, so it's not like they're like fashion's probably not their number one uh, priority.
1: Well, and like I think too, like culturally with the screens and I'm sure we'll get more into the what we learn of, of screen culture and screen history kind of as we we go and get into the meat of this episode but like the co- and like it's also interesting too that they're a matriarchal society which is is always kind of like next nice to see as something different from what we're unfortunately we're used to and have internalized in terms of our our patriarchal structure and then that in on earth and then that extending to um you know how we conceive of other other societies and things like that but like the way that excuse me hanik and then like the other screen leaders are costumed and the way that their hair is done i got and i mean maybe this is just me but i kind of got almost like Hutterite or Mennonite or like I guess you know for the American listeners more familiar kind of with the uh, Amish um kind of more like vibes there and like them being more you know having their you know looking for I want to say Hamanatra, but no what's the the fabled homeland that Kentara. Yeah Pe- right thank you um looking for Kentara and like just their kind of Almost religious fundamentalism, but not like
0: right super
1: strong and overt and just kind of insular culture. It kind of yeah, it kinda of gave me like Amish or like Hutterite vibes and like it's kind of being yeah. that more kind of modest presenting and things like that. I don't know. That's just what it was, seemed like coded to me. I don't so know if it was like It that definitely
0: for seemed very modest um to me, but I thought because they are a matriarchal society that I took their hair as more like a crown um where like in a society where they're not refugees maybe they would have been wearing like tiaras or something like that
1: oh interesting
0: like i thought it was very all the women had this like it just felt very crown like to me i'm like moving my hands around my head
1: (laughs) interesting yeah i didn't uh (laughs) I, that's interesting. No, I like I like that's interesting reading. I didn't hadn't considered that. Um.
0: there is um and like before we get into like kind of the plot, I guess, um there is a lot of prejudice shown in this episode from kind of from mostly from Nog's perspective. And I I didn't I don't know if that really worked for me because it felt like it almost cheapened the prejudice by using a child in this role um for me like it just was it felt like I felt like in real life it would have been more um and I don't get me wrong like child children bully each other but like it felt like it would have been more impactful I mean obviously Quark has his comments but like it would have been more impactful for me to like see like the adults kind of being jerks i don't know
1: i i hear you um i don't think i totally agree like at least in concept i think i mean i i agree with you a little bit in terms of execution but for me this episode was kind of has hmm, what am i trying to say I think it was a creative choice to make some of the underlying tensions of which the episode is exploring kind of with the adult characters and having those coming out with Jake, Nog, and then Tumac. Um, because like they're not as young adults as teenagers. They're not right. as adept at negotiating some of these... These tensions and prejudices and and concerns that the adults are all not saying and not regulating, so it, right it's an it's almost at least for me is an insight then into like what Ben isn't saying when it comes out in Jake, what some of the other attitudes are, whether it's quarks or even kind of you know partially maybe even like you know kira's or the bajorans and like we get insight into kira's episode with the bajoran musician whose name i've i've forgotten in this in this episode mm, and, it's uh, kind of in, thank you um oh, okay. and then kind of in touch to what our characters are solving the dilemma aren't saying and i think the exchange that really crystallizes this for me is when jake is talking to tomac And says, "Oh, my dad told told me you found this great. They they found this great planet that you're gonna move to, and I'm so happy for you. And isn't that great?" And Tumax like, "Well, do you want to live there?" (laughs) And Jake's like, "No." And Tumax, "Me either." And just like the ways in which, largely, I think, like the Federation, where it's like, "Oh, we're the we're this middle way." and We've talked about them as like this liberal colonial power in the quadrant being, like, yeah, arguably better than the Cardassian occupation, or not arguably being obviously better than the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, but also still doing colonialism, right. um, albeit with, like, a kinder face. And the way that it's like, oh, we found this, like, mediated solution that no one's really happy with, and it just, like, it doesn't... I don't know. It just felt... And the expectation that Jake had that this was great, um, because the Federation had found it and this is a great solution. It just and that's that what that his really dad rang says, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so. yeah.
0: The one, the one scene that really kind of worked for me is um, after Rom had been kind of like caught by Odo for being a little jerky kid, um, and Cork comes to get him and because um not or uh, nog you mean? nog. Sorry? Yes, 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 yes. Because yeah. I meant to say because. Rom is, like, supposedly doing inventory, but obviously they didn't bring Max in for this episode, <laughs> um, is when Cork is, like, complaining to Odo about how these people can't gamble and they can't buy things in his bar. And, like, Cork is smart enough to understand why they can't. Like, they're refugees. They obviously don't have any money or purchasing power and it's almost like it felt very true in like how people will complain about certain groups, but also like deep down, even if they under like I think Cork understands like he's not stupid like he understands why he just like has no time for someone that can't benefit for- benefit him I guess, which feels really gross and I don't like it, but it it's feels true to how someone would actually act in that scenario
1: yeah and like we've talked before like even as recently as a couple episodes when we covered rules of acquisition that in a lot of ways especially on on deep space 9 and as as it kind of goes the ferengi kind of represent this window into 20th century um humanity right Mm -hmm. in terms of you know the critique of capitalism and everything else that that's inherent there and i think you're exactly on the money where it's like why would we this is quark's like line of thinking why would we invite these migrants these these refugees into our society when they can't they don't have the purchasing power to contribute to you know capital and the investment of capital Mm -hmm. so like why like there's yeah Just TLDR, I agree with you. Yeah,
0: it's funny. It kind of reminds me to go back to Babel, like that scene where Quark was like thinking that his customers were faking it so that they didn't have to pay the bar bill. Like he needed, he like had, he was, he didn't believe them. (laughs) It was like very ridiculous.
1: Um, Totally. And like Quark's been one to... Or I should say, Quark has never been one to shy away from disaster capitalism and like trying to make a buck, like on a oh, crisis totally, in terms of like yeah. selling his seat on evacuation shuttles and different things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and like Quark has even been more altruistic before. I mean, again, even as recently as the flashbacks in Necessary Evil, when he's willing to help the Bajoran underground yeah. and give Kira an alibi for a price. So it's just he sees no financial benefit in helping the screen so it's like of no interest yeah
0: and just to um, like in case people are unaware of like disaster capitalism it's basically trying to make a buck over off of someone that needs like legitimate help so like having um like a private um firehouse for a rich community that won't help other people that don't help pay for it or even during a horrible situation like if uber raises their prices like that that's like kind of what we mean
1: yeah and even like more specific, like you'll see you'll see it a lot in you know responses to things like you know hurricanes and the in the Caribbean right. and mm-hmm. in puerto rico and different like you know different yeah. things like that where it's like instead of you know non- non-profits or arms of various like estates providing relief it's private corporations going in yeah. to like you say like make a buck and to like financially benefit themselves and their shareholders um as part of like hurricane cleanup in Puerto Rico yeah or something like and
0: that. like only people that can afford it ends up getting protected or helped in those scenarios
1: yeah and it, and it also like then has this way of like um, there's a Naomi Klein book called yes, Shock I, Doctrine. I, yes, I've um, read it. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, if if listeners are are more interested in kind of digging into this, I I highly recommend it. Yes. Um. But like a good example of that is then you, then capital is able to the bus- big business is able to replicate itself, um as part in part of the recovery and then embed itself and then you know further kind of its aims a good example of this is what happened in the actually around the time that this episode is being being (laughs) created and aired in the the former eastern bloc and the former soviet union and things like that right so in russia after the soviet union fell instead of like gradually um moving towards like a free market economy and in kind of stages as they went from, you know, the the more centrally planned things that were happening under the the USSR, it was just like boom, one day you're capitalist. And like without all the support, the kind of the gradual shifting and yeah that's you had massive rises of inflation, et cetera et cetera. like yeah I, we're not a we're not a 1990s history podcast, so we will go into much more detail, but right, right. um the idea was that the market and the invisible hand of the market would be able to respond really quickly and kind of you know create this economic uplift in the former Soviet Union, and it didn't it didn't actually happen like that so. <laughs> I'm just really shocked um by that.
0: So before we get into like some uh, themes or a deeper dive into some of the things covered in this episode, I just wanted to do like a quick TLDR on this plot because I don't think we need to go um, bit by bit like as we go through. So basically, um, some refugees show up at Deep Space Nine, and there are some com- com- after some communication issues, our friends find out that these people are searching for their legendary homeworld, Quintana, and that there's about 3 million refugees in total. Um, the people feel very connected to the stories they've heard of Bajor, so they b- eventually believe that Bajor is Quintana, and Bajor basically decides that they can't have these refugees come to Bajor because they believe it will be a strain on their resources as they're still trying to rebuild since the Cardassians left. And then we're kind of, that's basically, you know, what
1: happens and throughout the episode.
0: Do you think that covers it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. And that's like kind of the, the central drama is will Bajor, that is, you know, still recovering from the occupation invite these refugees who are these migrants that want to migrate there and to live. Yeah, they want to farm
0: on their land. Yep. Yeah.
1: And they feel strongly that it would be to both the Screens and the Bajorans mutual benefit. And I my estimation is is Bajor's like, yes, we're sympathetic, but also Again, we have seen in the first seasons and a half these kind of Bajor nationalist, almost like xenophobic at times, depending oh, on your, yeah. your faction responses that kind of like reactionaryism that, that come out of the, the occupation and the post occupation um period that Bajor is living through. And yeah, no, it's it's I mean yeah. yeah I mean for for Rani is like I think a really good example of that even not necessarily being like a, a Colma like you know or a member of the circle or whatever just like a, yes I'm sympathetic but Bajor can't do this because blah 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 right or right. it's like it's like oh it's so bad we have to like turn away these refugees but we just don't have room sorry that sucks and it just it's it's frustrating because that is a like a pervasive attitude that exists now. Um, but I'm getting ahead of ourselves in the end, so I'm gonna pull it back and we'll we'll get there when we get there.
0: So I wanted to highlight Kira in this episode. Um we kind of get a little bit of backstory about how she's been spending her time. Um it seems like she is trying she's getting she's stretching her self-thin I feel at the beginning of the episode um semi-neglecting her station duties because she's you know she cares so deeply about Beijor that she's trying to you know fight for what she thinks needs to be going on there and so every conversation she's having with like ministers or vedics or whoever it just ends up getting p- political and then she doesn't do like her duty schedule that she needs to be uh that um she's been owing uh Cisco for a couple days. I did find the whole scene where Quark calls her to help with his Varani problem. I guess um so. Varani is this amazing Bajoran musician, and it seems like Kira like basically got him a gig at Quark's. Um, but the problem is, is that everyone's watching him perform and not gambling and not um buying drinks and the whole time at first I'm like why is he going to Kira for this and then you realize Kira like set them up to to work together and I do think that having regular music at the bar is really nice um this scene made me laugh a lot because the way that Cork was talking about like the music kind of being not what he wants in the bar it it, I don't know if people are familiar with the Pride and Prejudice miniseries from 1995 but there's a scene where Mary Bennett who's like the um like kind of reserved like more very religious um Bennett sister is playing piano and the her younger sisters are bored by what she's playing and want to dance and they make this whole scene and they're like Lydia's like, Mary, play Grimstock. And, like, Mary's, like, eye-rolling because she has to, like, play for, you know, for other people's entertainment rather than whatever she wants to play. And it kind of just reminded me of that. um, And I did at first wonder why this scene was even in the episode. But it really does seem show another example of Kira being pulled in different de- directions away from her normal station duties and just showing how she has such a sense of obligation to all these different causes and trying to help everyone and she's doing a little bit for everyone but also is she doesn't it doesn't feel like she's getting tasks done like it just felt very um like, ADHD brain, like, where you're trying to do a little bit of everything, and then it just, like, for me, this is how my brain works, and then I don't get anything done because I was trying to do too many things at once. I really related to that during this episode.
1: Yeah. 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 I hear that. I hear that.
0: Um, I also enjoyed watching Kira have to, like, deal with... She's not usually the person that deals... With with, like, a first contact, um, like, that's more of, like, a, that's more usually a federation thing, I, I believe, um, so it was kind of nice to see her and Hanak, Hanik, sorry, um, like, form a, a relationship and, and, like, understand each other, and i I found Kira to be really charming, and when she was helping them, um, And it just felt, like, kind of out of character for her, but it was also... um, I know she can be that way, but, like, I feel like up till now, we haven't really seen her be in that kind of
1: helpful role. Yeah, and it's... Like, this whole... The whole, like, conceit of this episode is it's an interesting moral dilemma to put kira in specifically right like because kira is such a passionate person and like has her strong clear sense of of her faith and her morality and her her sense of of being and i think why i like admittedly Kira so much is when when I enjoy Kira episode as much as I do is it's it's when those strong senses of moral clarity that she has are challenged and she's trying to like you know either reconstruct her worldview or decide like who she is now at at this point of her life versus like other points of her life and I think her the friendship with Hanik and like how then it it goes and ends up kind of being being broken over these these greater kind of political mm-hmm. forces and and this decision making, um, it really works for me and and like I think it draws a really strong it illustrates very strongly draws a an interesting picture of the ways in which we can look at things like migrant crises or refugee issues as being these really complicated political issues but when it comes down to it they're human issues and they're people and it's relationships and it's like what are the damages of that like right of of someone's foreign policy um directly impacting someone else's life
0: yeah denying
1: or denying them a life
0: Right, I the, feel the like that, that happens. I feel like conversations and things that we see and like in our world are so um unless you're part of a group that's affected by policy, you don't often see. the people that are making policies are not are clearly not in and i say relationships but i don't mean like personal relationships i i, I like they're not interacting with the people yeah. that the policy is for so to see to see kira have to like face the actual people that the policies like affecting is very um it's very stressful actually i found um and i don't mean that like negatively like i just it was it was very tense because you know, unless you're at like a town hall for like a politician coming, you you don't you don't often see that. Like the person having to deal directly with with the person that made the policy that's affecting
1: their lives. No, you're you're exactly correct, and I mean I think that's another expression then of the ruling class, it's like you know, political class being disconnected from. The folks they're actually like governing or or making policy for, right? And like, yep, I feel too. And like I was saying before, just to, to repeat myself, and maybe then we can transition to talking more about the the screens. More is Bajor has been the victim of a brutal occupation based on Cardassian imperialism and basically Cardassian settler colonialism and ultimately like settler capitalism because they're using Bajar for its resources mm-hmm. right to further their their kind of machine there and the reason then the screens are on their literal exodus is because there are also victims of double imperialism <laughs> or two expressions of imperialism right in in the delta quadrant right because like the, the episode over sorry, excuse me, the Gamma Quadrant. (laughs) We're not watching Um, Voyager. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, And the episode ends up focusing more on this idea of, like, the the religious um, prophecy sort of aspect um, than this. But when we're getting kind of the background on screen history and how they're structured and why a lot of their leaders are, are dead. Um, the screens were an underclass. They were victims. They were like, you know, enslaved essentially by a different race that then ended up getting destroyed by a race that the screens don't, don't know the name of, but were powerful members of something called the dominion, which we first heard about as being some kind of big, big player in the the gamma contingent back in in rules of acquisition. Mm-hmm. So obviously in whoever these members of the dominion and whatever the dominion is, um these players against who took out the oppressors of the screens had no interest in actually doing that um to encourage self-determination of the screens or support them or whatever like the screens are still you know, now literal refugees are migrants based on this this conflict that didn't even necessarily involve them or include them or they didn't necessarily even really have a stake in. Right. right. So you'd think that Bajor would be, would see these parallels between, you know, the Screams and themselves. Oh, then, totally. But obviously the the Bajorans um, say no, right? As we, yeah. we talked about before. And are sympathetic, but... Um, yeah, <laughs> and I so think I, too to kind of sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. No, and I I think just to kind of like preface kind of forward we get into kind of further detail, kind of about the the screens in this episode. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit more about kind of the lens in which I'm you know coming from and like looking at this episode in terms of what is like a just response, what is like the moral response to like a refugee crisis or a migrant crisis or you know to victims of imperialism and and war right because I think in a lot of ways we are trained in our society especially kind of you know post the the cold war so kind of through the 90s as the international system and all you know the different countries and the UN and stuff were pivoting away from the idea of the cold war you see this reinvestment in peacekeeping or peacemaking and like these these foreign interventions you know these these expressions of ultimately imperialism and colonialism but covered up in the sense of like moral clarity from the west right like i think a good example we can think of as, as of an example of what i'm talking about is u.s involvement in. um somalia in like the 90s and you know supporting different kind of humanitarian efforts air quotes abroad but you're doing that with armed boots on the ground and, and troops and trying to violently make peace um and kind of just quickly off the the top of our head i'm thinking about like whether other kind of migrant crisis or migrant refugee things issues points historically that this episode like reminded me of um Firstly again the the MS St. Louis in 1939 which was a boat of Jewish refugees fleeing from from nazism in in Germany and the rise of nazism in in Europe and sailed to North America and came to Canada and came to the US and came to several different ports saying hey we like let us in shit's bad over there and um they were denied access and were deported and a lot of those folks on that on the boat, ended up being victims of the Holocaust, as an example, which again was something I think thematically could ring true for this episode. Right. Um, I was I was also thinking of again, as listeners will remember, I am I am Canadian, so I'm coming in at it that through this lens. But in the 70s, when the socialistaïndi government was couped by the Argentinian military. Uh, our chilean military excuse me and um set up of the the pinochet government which fun fact canada and a lot of the western powers actually supported um the the coup in chile (laughs) but then there was a big rush there's a big push in canadian civil society as more facts were getting up about you know the disappearances and and the murders that were going on and In Chile under under the Pinochet government to bring in refugees to Canada who were those Allende supporters and, you know, more kind of left-leaning folks. So Canada in that case was pilling both sides of, you know, accepting refugees based on political pressure from civil society, but also was fundamental in supporting the coup that overthrew the ayanda government and then more recently in the last 10 years listeners will probably be the most familiar with um the syrian civil war and the migrant crisis whether it be you know in in europe and then you know north america kind of as a as a result as it flares up in the the public consciousness um and yeah like i don't my personal opinion, and I'll I'll say this, and then I'll uh, we can go back to talking about the episode. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Elise. That like a just response to something like the Syrian civil war, the conflict in Syria, isn't throwing more missiles, isn't shooting more <laughs> missiles, and destroying <laughs> more facilities in Syria. Right. Um, it's not foreign interventions. It's not peacekeeping or peacemaking it's supporting migration it's putting those systems in place making it easier for folks fleeing that conflict um to be safe and reunited with families in well wherever they want but largely in the west because again that's where these these folks want to go because they are victims of Western imperialism, um, et cetera, et cetera. Again, to invoke Russia again the second time, them aligning themselves as a foreign power with um, <clears throat> the the Syrian government and and things like that. Um, but yeah, and, no human is illegal. Um, thank you. This has been my rant, and I a hundred
0: percent cosign that. Hard hard agree.
1: Thank you for coming to Matt's (laughs) History Corner.
0: (laughs) I do find the screens culture to be so interesting. Like, Hanik shows up with these three dudes and, like, you know, is said to be drawn to Kira at first, but then we learn that they're a matriarchal society, so of course they're going to talk to the woman in the room. Um, I do... I get very um, defensive uh, in support of people that are not being understood. So when when they're doing that one bit with the the physical comedy bit where the two guys keep picking up the things at the shop and Odo's face is so annoyed that they're not understanding him, Odo's face to those guys is my face to Odo about, like, watching him be so impatient with them. Like, it's not their fault they don't speak the language. It's not their fault they, like, the universal translator doesn't understand them. Like, It just really, um, I mean, it's Odo and he's a grump. And so I'm not surprised, but that like annoyed me. Um, I normally am really into the physical comedy um, scenes in a. um, In a deep space sign or in anything for that matter, but I this scene with the two guys picking up all the items in this shop just felt very forced and didn't feel like a natural thing to me. So I didn't find it as funny, I think, as it was supposed to be. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but it just I I was like this. I know it's supposed to be played for laughs, but I was just like, okay, I don't need this.
1: Yeah, and like, oh something. Sorry, I just knocked something over. Um, it's interesting too because I definitely think, and especially with some of the, you know, the conversation that Hinik and kira have at times or hanik you know and and cisco at Ops so they're looking for different planets in the ways Mm -hmm. in which you know the matriarchal society of the scurrians in a lot of ways mimics and mirrors um the patriarchal society that we're unfortunately um, more familiar with on earth and the ways in which you know it's portrayal of the screen men and this idealized version of like oh they're too emotional they fight all the time that's natural to them and like oh like like an equal say something like really like derogatory about men in screen society because oh don't misunderstand me we love our men blah 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 which like felt like something a politician would say scene, <laughs> and like you know talking about like a women now yeah, like a male yeah politician would say yeah about, like, no i can i can no,
0: totally picture it yep
1: yeah so like like that's what what they're they're doing and like i think that's like you know what the episode is is working with and you know exploring but like that doesn't mean it's still not kind of a little cringy to watch right yeah
0: um i did find like i couldn't tell if i would describe their society as like polyamorous or like harem based (laughs) or like reverse harem based i guess um like because hanik had two men who were bound who were bonded to her. So, I got yeah. the impression that like she probably doesn't fuck anyone outside of those two guys. But like they both, they're like all It almost felt like a throuple situation cuz yeah. they all slept in the bed together. Um Yeah. And I yeah. would say like they really hammered the like too emotional to be leaders thing a little hard um the men were not portrayed as emotionally intelligent at all i would not even want to have had sex with any of them because they were (laughs) so dumb they just were very um i'm not turned on by like men just fighting with each other over stupid shit so they were kind of portrayed as like almost cavemen for lack of a better term um And because of how childlike they were acting, it felt like it added in a weird age gap between her and her partners to the point where I didn't realize that that one guy was her son until that very end. (laughs) I was very like, I didn't realize that. I thought she just had three boyfriends.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah. Which is kind of funny. (laughs) Yeah. And like. I think that's another case kind of like we were talking about with, with Rugal and Cardassians a couple weeks ago right. where they cast a 20 something as, right. a, as like mm-hmm. a teenager. Um, and so it's going to read, it's right. going to read a certain way than maybe like they necessarily intend. And I guess just a little um, interesting kind of Trek fact on, on Tomac he's played by Andrew Keening. Um, who is Walter Caning's Chekhov from the original series? Late son, so a little bit of a, a family oh, wow. connection there. Um, yeah, who unfortunately passed away about ten years ago. Oh, that's um, that's
0: sad. But that's a fun yeah. cameo.
1: Yeah, and then I think too, like I I hear what you're saying about kind of the the relationship nature, um, obviously not necessarily being a, a monogamous one within the screen culture. I would almost describe it more as, and again, because it's a matriarchal society and they're, they're, you know, I think trying to show how ridiculous some aspects of conservative patriarchy and patriarchy right. are in general with the screens. But I would almost akin it to more like a polygamous sort of um relationship model right. as opposed to a polyamorous one. Um, well, that's poly- why I said
0: I don't think that they fuck anyone outside of their group. So I, I feel like I said polyamory, and then I, I'm retracting that. Yeah, so no, I, fair, I agree fair with enough, you. Fair yeah. enough.
1: Yeah, I just think that like polygamy i like i think it's very different from polyamory oh totally no right whereas like polygamy within in our world and and our context like is very much an expression of of patriarchy and has um those kind of like toxic power imbalances between um men and women and and, you know things like that in very um conservative and fundamentalist communities whereas Polyamory is something that is is very different, and I think generally, folks at at least as I understand it, um, no, I, I definitely and I, and I think folks at large you. can like really get those confused sometimes. So I just right,
0: to no, I and I realize explicitly like,
1: draw that distinction. I know you. No, no,
0: no. I I I appreciate that. Um, but yes, I I agree with you. Um, they're not definitely not the same thing, and like I don't think that they're just like, yeah. As I said, they're not like. Having sex outside of their bonded thing, yeah. Um, one thing I did find interesting, and I really it felt like very hopeful, is the scene where I I don't was it I don't remember if it was Odo that was talking with Cisco about how crowded the station's gonna get, and and Cisco's like just watching, and he just seems like really happy and content, and he's like they're experiencing their first taste of freedom, and that made me a little emotional. Um. It made me happy, even though I don't love how the episode ends, um, which we'll get into shortly. I did feel like at least their one oppression is over or their double oppression, I guess, is o- is over, hopefully. Um, I think I don't think that there were people that were I mean, obviously, we don't know what happens to them after this episode, but um. Yeah, I just seeing them like be able to do what they wanted, at least for a short time, was like in the moment I was happy, even though I didn't like where it went after that.
1: Yeah. But then I think, again, that's a good example then of like freedom defined by who, right? Like, right, in terms yeah. of like, well, we're feeling all good about we're helping and, you know, we're being all Federation-y and like, calm down, Odo, you grumpy, flirting with fascism goo man. Like, they can <laughs> run around the, they're like, we'll, they have, we'll be shoulder to shoulder on the promenade for a bit. It's okay. But then, like, you're still removing this element of, like, self-determination and, and desire away from the, taking it away from the screens, right? So, like, you're still, yeah still kind of being, like, it's like a kind of a gentle imperialism where it's like, yeah, we'll find you find this planet, but it's not the one you want. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So, so. they have a couple representatives from or come um, to basically explain their, de- oh, I hear Ellie. Hey, um, Ellie, to explain their decision. Um, basically they say that the ministers and the Vedic mm-hmm. Assembly have all talked um, supposedly heatedly I guess um, that's a lot of adverbs allegedly <laughs> yeah um, and they've denied the Screens request for immigration and this is kind of where I the episode made me cry and I was the screens are seasoned farmers and they really believe they could have made this uninhabited land work for them but Bezier is doubtful and won't risk it based on some projections which we don't get to find out what those are um, and I don't get me wrong, I feel for Bajor, and they're clearly scared. um, they've been through a lot, but like it felt very, yeah, we can't risk having to give you mutual aid because we need it for ourselves, and I felt that being, and you mentioned this earlier, the Bajorans being a religious species, like you'd think that they would understand this fabled home world, even if I personally think that that's nonsense like. I'm not a religious person and I don't believe that land is um, given to you by some sort of higher power. Um, it does feel like that. Be- I really, I just really felt like Bejor made a huge mistake here. Um, it could have been such a symbi- symbiotic relationship between the two communities. And I, I just, and I, When that woman was giving this, I don't know, the one representative was like, but we would feel the need to help you. Like, she tried to make herself sound so, like, such a good person by saying this, and it just felt so cold and empty to me by saying, yeah, right. you're not asking for our help if you're in a crisis when you're on our planet, but we'd feel the obligated to do it anyway. Like, it just felt, like, so shallow to me. I don't know.
1: Well, firstly, the Bajoran minister um, that says no that like, is played by Kitty Swank, who is Armin Shimerman's wife. So always nice oh. to see Kitty Swank on. I knew Star she. Trek.
0: I knew she was in a bunch of Star Trek, but I didn't. I don't know her face, so now I'll have to look for her occasionally.
1: Yeah, but I also I thought it was interesting that like not only like Kitty Swank, um, Bajoran. But Bajoran minister, but also they had that Vedic there as well. So you have Mm -hmm. both the church and the state acting, acting together for various reasons. Say, sorry, you can't live here. Sorry that we have a similar background or whatever, but Bajor just can't help by when it's like, this is like theoretically a post-scarcity society with things like... And I know that, like, Pedro's recovering, but they also have the support of the Federation, which, right. like, found them another planet, found the screens another planet. So, like, it just... I felt it was really frustrating because, again, it's, like, another case where there's a lack of political will to do something, so something else is done that's, like, a half measure. Um, you know?
0: yeah i just i also i keep thinking like if they did and like no i mean they implied that no one was living on this land that they wanted to live on and like you hear those kind of stories all the time and there's actually people living there like obviously that is how yeah. america was founded and i use the founded um in quotes Um, like, there were people living here. So, like, it's hard for me to know whether there are legitimately no people living on the land that that the Screens wanted to move to or if Uh it was just one of those, yeah, there's probably some native people there, but they're not a big population or, you know, etc., etc. I do want to believe that in this instance, there probably was literally no one there. I I hope that that's the truth. Um, I feel like the show thinks to thinks highly of itself enough that they would that that was their intention <laughs> like I feel like they had decent intentions in saying that um but I I just feel like it could be nice like the screens could help the help Bejor like learn a different way to farm like they could be they just could have benefited each other I really plus it's always I think it's great to like have. Like, learn about other peak cultures, and I don't know. I just... The more and more I think about it, the more I'm annoyed. (laughs) Yeah. I did... Yeah. I didn't... The scene at the end where um Hanik's son takes the damaged shuttle or ship or whatever it was and like tries to go to Bajor anyway and like I I didn't think that that scene was necessary for the plot like it just seemed um like a time filler for me almost I don't know um but I was really excited that General Hazar was um, Donna Martin's dad from Beverly Hills, Dinotuno. That's all I have to yeah. say about
1: that scene. <laughs>
0: like, it was sad, and, like, it just seemed like it didn't need to happen to me.
1: Yeah, like, I... I mean, it, it it's... A hard scene to watch and a in no, <laughs> in for a sure, lot of ways. yeah, um, and i like I think it's it's showing that it's intended to show that these decisions have personal stakes, right, yeah, um, and even though like everyone's n- not wanting this teenager to die, um sometimes we got that that there are consequences to. The political actions and realities, and even when it's like, "Oh no, we're trying to stand down," and "Oh no, blah blah blah," and then he ends up um, blowing you know, up. His ship ends up exploding. Yeah, just because it's it's old and and it whatever has that so, leak
0: or whatever. Yeah,
1: like there are very real and tangible consequences of the policy decisions that are made in this episode. Yeah, um,
0: I guess you're so. you're right, and that is a good purpose, but I just it was, it was heartbreaking to me.
1: Yeah. No, for sure. For
0: um, sure. Do, do you have anything else to add on this episode before we move on with our regular segments?
1: Nope. I'm, I'm good. So I don't, I don't know about you at least, but we've been talking for a while. Um, I've had a lot of coffee today. <laughs> me so too. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little parched. So, uh, I'm a little thirsty. I don't know about you.
0: Um, I definitely am a little thirsty.
1: Yeah, so who who are you thirsting for this week?
0: I don't know that I'm like thirsting for a specific person. And don't get me wrong, I have zero intention of being married to even one man, let alone two. But the idea of having multiple useful dudes bonded to me sounds like it could be interesting and fun for a time. <laughs> Like, she seems like she could get those dudes to do whatever she wanted, and I thought that was hot. (laughs) What about you?
1: Yeah, um, (laughs) to be completely honest, I don't think I'm thirsting for, despite the setup, despite the setup for this segment and the coffee I've had to drink today, um, (laughs) You're just literally
0: st- you're just literally thirsty. Literally thirsty. <laughs> yeah, not not euphemistically thirsty. No, That's I just fair. Like,
1: I'm I come out to my lunch for this episode not not feeling particularly metaphorically thirsty, but I, just yeah. like Feeling the sense of righteous indignation. That's fair. Against, I think it helps you know, All the things I talked about in Matt's History Corner. Right. Among the things that I didn't mention as well. I think
0: that it helps that the scene that I pulled for this section happens early enough in the episode that it was like... Yeah. I, like, picked it on my first watch, and then when I was rewatching it again, like, I got so sad the second half of the episode that it was like, yeah. I already, like... I was able to compartmentalize a little bit on it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: And um, what would you say is the most Star Trek thing of the episode for you?
1: Most Star Trek thing of the episode. I mean, other than the toast kind of, this is the good compromise because no one's happy, sort of. <laughs> I mean, that's a know. good one response to it i think i think that's kind of more it for me and where i kind of land there that's what that's true you?
0: i don't i don't know that this is like a most star trek thing but i just really wanted to point out that um verani at the beginning of the episode when he was playing at quarks was playing the deep space nine theme song and that really yes, fat- yes, 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 yes i yes. thought that was so good and he made he played it beautifully um or whoever was playing it, I I don't know if the actor was really playing anything, um. But it was just like a slowed down um version, and it just it was really pretty. I really liked it, and it just felt like funny to me that the th- the theme song would be like within Star Trek, and that I feel like that's happened before, but I don't remember. I don't know, like on Deep Space Nine, but I feel like. like watching other series like there's been times where the music has like been in but you know what I think I'm thinking of James Bond (laughs) instead because there's a couple like um there's a couple there's like I don't remember which movie but there's like a movie where like I think Sean Connery is somewhere and they're playing like the James Bond theme like within the movie (laughs) or something um, and oh, I nice. think that's funny. I don't. I'm trying to remember. It happens
1: in Star Wars too, where like the Imperial March is like in universe as Star Wars, like the there's an upbeat version of the Imperial March, which is like the national or galactic anthem. Yeah, yeah. Of, I didn't. Of the I Empire. didn't.
0: What? I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, so it plays a couple times, like in Rebels, over like an upbeat version of uh... it over like imperial like propaganda posters and then it does it happens again in in solo um okay you the beginning when they're at the the starport in corelia before solo joins the yeah imperial temporarily so yeah the the A A A F C A F C when they when they give um, him
0: his last name <laughs> yeah
1: exactly um yeah, the Imperial March like exists in the universe. So it's another example. That, that is
0: funny. Um, I do get enjoyment when think when like they do that in media, even if it doesn't make sense. It's fun.
1: <laughs> well, until next time, Elise. Where can folks find more of you on the internet?
0: Yes, you can find me on Twitter and Letterbox at Elise underscore Tendi E L Y S E T underscore T E N D
1: I N U. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as well at MattyHugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can catch both of us together on Twitter and Instagram at pod Wraiths. You can also email us at PodRates, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S, at gmail.com.
0: Please remember to rate and review us on the podcatching system of your choice. And thank you again to DJ Empirical for our interstellar theme song. And
1: until next time computer, and a program. Bye.